First and foremost, I want to let everyone know that we have a trailblazer on the line today, a trailblazer, uh, Miss Jade Simmons. Uh, what an impressive, impressive resume. Jade was once uh, Miss Chicago, Miss Illinois. She ran for Miss America. She was first runner-up, right? That's right. First runner-up. Months ago, but that's all right. That's all right, though. You know, that's an impressive resume. We can't take that away from you. And now she is an independent candidate running for the presidency of the United States of America. This is the AdCast. You're listening to the AdCast. All right, everyone, I want to welcome you to the AdCast. This is the podcast for marketers and advertisers. It's the first time that I've ever had a political candidate, someone running for the highest office in the land, is on the line with me today, Mrs. Jade Simmons. You ever want to give her a round of applause today, Ms. Jade? Awesome. Um, so well-deserved, right, Jade? You, you're used to hearing those applause throughout your career. So uh, I want to talk a little bit. I want to give a little bit of your bio. I know I mentioned a little bit before, but then I don't want to botch it because I want you to be able to tell the audience exactly who's Jade Simmons and where you're from. Uh, so, folks, I'll tell you, Ms. Jade Simmons, she was Miss, Ch- Miss Chicago, Miss Illinois, and first runner-up for Miss America in 2000. She is a celebrated concert pianist uh, that has traveled the world. She's traveled the world, so uh, she has a good life. And so for her to really step up and do what she's doing right now, that takes a lot. That takes a lot. And then she's a 2020 independent presidential candidate, and she is a, a multi-talented artist and powerhouse speaker. Uh, Jade, for those folks that have been living under a rock and don't know exactly who you are, please tell them exactly who you are. Well, you know, in their defense, they haven't been living under a rock. What they're witnessing is what we see every four years, which is this phony presentation that our nation, as diverse, powerfully as diverse, powerfully diverse as it is, could ever be uh, divided into two parts. Mm -hmm. So I am an independent candidate. I've been running since January, believe it or not, we didn't announce until February because shame on us. We thought before you went public, you should probably have your papers filed and in place. We didn't think that the media would take us seriously if we came out of the gate just saying that I was running for president. So we've done our due diligence. We've been here for going into the ninth month now. You know, I am very, very proud of my history with the Miss America program. But a lot has happened since between then. I did that while I was in college at Northwestern. Absolutely. And I... Yeah, I had the the dream of becoming simply a classical concert pianist. So all of my initial schooling was in music performance. I went to Northwestern and came here, married my high school sweetheart, and uh, got my master's degree here at Rice University in Houston, also in music. And so I did make my early career doing exactly what I set out to do. I got to play in incredible halls around the world, play recitals, play with orchestra. Uh, but I also could never get away from the fact that I love to speak and provide inspiration, information whenever possible, along with entertainment. So mm-hmm. today I'm actually brought in by some of the world's most renowned companies, organizations, leadership institutes to speak on transformation, reinvention. Companies bring me in when they're going through difficult periods of change, want to power up their leadership, want their leadership to see their teams in a new way. If teams are looking to now have leaders who lead down through to the legacy of the people they serve and not just think about their own good lives, as right. you mentioned, but how to inspire and power, power up their own uh, leaders in training. 
they bring me in for that. Uh, I have the honor of having been named one of the top keynote speakers for 2020 and for 2019. And so when I toss my hat in the ring for something like the presidency, it's not without truly believing I have something to add to the atmosphere of this moment. Mm -hmm. And we're looking to offer a new lane of leadership. So I come to you and don't think of me as a political novice. Think of me as someone who says we need more than politics to power us through this moment. We need a different type of leadership, uh, a different type of service. And so that's why I'm here. You bring up a good point in, in another interview. Um, and, and I want the folks to know you didn't just wake up one day and just say that you were going to run for president because it takes a whole lot for you to be able to do this. Right. So <laughs> when, when did you, when did it actually go off in your head to say, I am really going to do this. And when you did do it, uh, you know, how did you break that to your family? What was the support like when you decided to say, I'm going to run for president? Yeah, my, my family's incredible. Um, I'm from Charleston, South Carolina, and my mother uh, has worked in higher education all of my life. She's also a musician, also a pianist. My father's a civil rights activist. And the way that we were raised, my sister and I, was that you always were to be mindful, not of just what was happening for you in your life, but you were always to be mindful of society around you and what was happening to and for others. So I watched my father when being out in the streets wasn't as popular as it is right now, where he is often the only one protesting by himself, often for people. He's fighting for people that often aren't standing by his side as he fights for them. And the way that he justifies that is that you don't have to wait on permission to do what's right. You see injustice, you speak out about it. So when you ask about my family, um, my husband and I have been talking about this for quite a few years. Uh, but to be honest with you, I thought that the start date for all of this would be a little bit further into the future. So I did not just wake up and decide to run for president. Mm -hmm. A few years back when President Trump was elected, watching that transition was really eye-opening. Uh, there were a couple of things I was extremely concerned about. I felt like the spirit of division that we were seeing in politics would begin to permeate now in a new way at a heightened level, our individual lives, our churches, our workplaces. I felt like race relations by the time this election cycle came around would be at an all-time low. I also have talked in many interviews about the sense that the economic disparities that we've been dealing with now uh, for way too long would become exacerbated. I didn't see COVID-19 coming the way that it did. Yep. I honestly didn't believe that the murder of George Floyd would do what it did. And so those two events right there to me justify leaning in in this moment. People say, this is such a critical time. Why would you run now? All it's right. so critical. I run now because it is so critical. It's too critical to do what we've always done, Eric. It's too critical to say, let's just allow this moment to fade away in symbolism and not actually push through paradigm-shifting reforms. It's too critical to see the economic damage done right now to more people than ever before. It's, it's, you're seeing poor people exacerbated because that's what always happens. But you're also seeing people being kicked out of the middle class. <laughs> you're seeing millionaires suddenly not be millionaires anymore. This is a paradigm shifting moment. We must match that with paradigm shifting action. And so to jump in in this moment was decisive. Uh, and I do believe that if you look at the other options that we have, you have to ask yourself, can you imagine the current president 
who often behaves as an instigator in chief, being the person to not only push us through this powerful moment, we're finally as a world recognizing systemic injustices. Is he going to be able to usher us into a, a place where not only do we have reform, but that it's done without stirring each other up against each other? Or can you imagine Vice President Biden, who rem- remember now, was given to President Obama to tone down the change rhetoric, to help people feel like nothing much was going to change. We're, we're really mostly going to stay the same. Uh, let's just have the change be inspirational here. Do we really believe that that's going to be the person that can get us into a paradigm shifting moment? And so we believe that many Americans don't believe either of the two options are the answer. And we're standing here powerfully, unashamed, unapologetically, because we don't think it's fair that so many Americans have to go to the polls feeling like they're voting for the lesser of two evils. Mm-hmm. This is supposed to be a democracy which only flourishes an abundance of choices, and I'm one of those choices. So when people say this is the most important election of our time, it truly is. I mean, on, on, on so many different levels, it's the first time during an election that I can recall, even in my adult life, that we're going through a pandemic, right? Uh, and, and I do feel like right now race relations are at an all-time high. And, and how can you, being a great communicator, how can you help with race, race relations, Jade? Race is a second language for me. You know, the, the way that we have been raised in my family is that you don't shy away from the tough conversations, that you facilitate them. Mm-hmm. So when organizations bring me in to speak on race, uh, they bring me in for a couple of reasons. One of the reasons is that I'm able to speak about it in a way that doesn't allow us to turn a blind eye to things we might have been ignoring. But I also speak about it in a way that while we find the ability to hold ourselves accountable for our role um, you know, in the state of race relations, it also allows us to have a conversation that's not only conducted from a place of blame shifting. Mm-hmm. And that's what you're seeing right now. You're watching people groups that should be bonding together. If you look at the state of impoverished white people and impoverished black people, they got a lot in common. And over the years, what has been done is there's been this falsehood set up to make people on one side fear the other and to make uh, people who I believe are poor on one side believe, well, at least we're not as bad off as those guys. So we're doing good over here and we want to keep America great. That's, that's a tactic. And we've seen that tactic played out on the continent of Africa. We've seen that tactic played out here very well. And I think we now have to have someone who is able to expose the different tactics that have been used against us. The way that we have to hide now behind party lines and are made to believe that simply electing someone because they're blue or because they're red is going to change the state of things. No. That, that's not the actual truth. I want to talk about that because um, right before uh, I went live, I had someone send me a message and said, and they said, uh, well, she's going to split the vote. She's going to split the vote. Um, So how hard is that when we talk about those party lines? Does that make it difficult for someone like you who has this middle of the road message or, or, you know, you're not trying to see on either side. Does that make it harder for you to be able to get your message out when there is the two party line? Yes, does that mythological concept of the split vote make it difficult? It does, because it's not actually rooted in fact. Uh, It's rooted in fear, and it's a tactic of both parties 
to cause you to feel as if you only have one option, and the option is them. Uh, we are finding traction now amongst conservatives and Christians mm-hmm. who no longer want to hitch their train to the president, who they said they voted for because of one or two issues. This is not the time to be voting based on one or two issues. We must now vote on the whole picture and long-term viability for us as a nation and us as a people. My friends on the left now are finding a home in our campaign uh, for multiple reasons as well. We have progressives who used to be behind Bernie Sanders, who is no longer an option for them. Mm -hmm. And they see policies that finally speak to the needs of everyday people. You know, so we're finding moderates as well who said, I've never felt at home in the party uh, that I lean towards. They don't speak for me powerfully. We have people, uh, you know, who are saying, listen, I'm pro-life and I wanted a more conservative justice, but I want to see more action taking for people who are in poverty. People on the, on the left are saying, listen, we're humanitarian. We care about the environment, but we also care about reducing the deficit. Right. And so what that is, people are having nuanced conversation. That is how most of us speak and behave. But every four years, Every election cycle, we're made to pick and choose these false over these falsely drawn lines. Listen, the person who was commenting before came along to uh, do the exact opposite of cheering me on when I first launched. Absolutely. There are certain people that are going to be that way, and that's it. They're not our audience. They are convinced that there's only one way to do things, and that's just to get the current president out of office. You must vote blue. But see, it's not enough in this time to say, who do we get out of office? We waste this moment. If we don't decide who to put in office powerfully, mm-hmm. that's, that's why I stand here. The split vote, I say, is a mythology. It's used to keep us bound in fear. Uh, if you want to talk numbers, I, I say I've been saying very often, if you look at the 2016 election with Jill Stein, everybody blames her <laughs> for what happened. Hillary Clinton is to blame for her own campaign. We're responsible as candidates for the races that we run. The people, what we noticed in 2016, you had 6 million new voters. Nobody talked about that. Brand new voters hadn't voted before. The problem with the two-party system for them is that they didn't see an option in either of the two parties. So those 6 million new voters voted other than red or blue. So Jill Stein didn't steal Hillary Clinton's vote. She got the votes of people who resonated with her vision, did not resonate with Trump, did not resonate with Hillary. It would be impossible to split a vote Think about it. So, Eric, if, if you're running and you've got a platform and a vision and your people line up behind you, I can't steal them. Right. Because the only way I steal, you, you literally can't steal them. Now, if I come along and offer a vision that they like more, I'm not stealing them. They're saying, wait a minute. I like you more. I it, but I like her more. Now, why should they then have to vote for you if their heart, their conscience, their values? Go with me. When we say that, we're literally saying that we're okay with people not feeling good about who they vote for, not actually putting their faith and their vote behind the options and the policies and the proposals they believe in so that they can vote how you want them to vote so you can have the outcome you want. We are literally sitting in the face of the democracy we pretend to have. You know, the U.S. went to Europe, trained them how to have elections, and told them you must have multiple options on your ballot. And then we came back and suppressed that exact thing. If pe- people knew what was going on behind scenes, the Republican and Democratic Party have a joint agreement to keep third party and independent candidates off the debate stage in the major debate. 
I heard Nobody you, knows that. I heard you say that in another interview. Now, it's now, called the memorandum agreement. It's called the memorandum agreement. When you, when you decided to run, um, how long have you been an independent? Let me ask you that. I've been an independent for as long as I can remember. If you look at my voting record, I think my first time to vote was for President Clinton. Mm -hmm. You'll see probably a track record of voting for Democratic presidential candidates because I believe that the atmosphere must be changed at the top and you must have an atmosphere for change and for progressivism in the, in the terms of being able to elevate others other than you. But if you watch my local voting, um, my statewide voting, you will see I go back and forth across the party line because I'm looking for balance. So you won't find me ever pulling a lever for one party or the other all the way down. Never do down ballot voting. No straight ticket you, for you. Never a straight never, ticket for you. Think about when you when you vote straight ticket, what you are what you are saying is I'm absolutely okay that the needs and the concerns of an entirely different demographic or an entirely different uh, party members don't get served. I'm okay with that. And we've now seen the president say that. I am going to do everything to empower the people that put me in office to heck with everybody else. So I run as an independent so that when I'm in office, you don't have to wonder mm -hmm. if, first of all, I got three donors and corporations that I now need to make decisions that only help them. You don't have to wonder that because we don't take corporate donations, even though I spend a lot of time speaking to big corporations. It'd be very easy to go after that kind of money. And we be able to it. get that money to fund your campaign. You, you just say, I, I don't want it. It'd be much easier. And the reason that we don't is because then you'd, you'd be suspicious of me as you are and should be with every other candidate that's doing just that. Uh, the other thing that I get to do as an independent is I can speak about the whole issue. I don't have to falsely align myself with one part of an issue. So we say that we're pro-human. My pro-life friend says, well, we care about the baby in the womb. Well, I do too. I also care about people dying in race-based murder where police brutality is concerned. I also care about families dying at the border. I also care about families who are struggling and you're taking off of assistance in the middle of COVID-19. Mm -hmm. All of that is caring about life. And so my pro-choice friends get a little upset when I say that, listen, I wanna see the abortion rate continue to decline. And I do believe that abortion is wrong. I, I believe it's a stain on the soul of our nation. But my pro-life friends get upset when I say my aim is not to reverse Roe v. Wade. My aim is to look at all the other ways that we can help women choose life more abundantly. That looks like pay equity for me. <laughs> that looks like welfare reform for me. That looks like raising the minimum wage. That looks like making sure that we have a living wage in our nation. All of that to me is tied to helping people be able to choose life powerfully in all of its forms. You see, no other politician is speaking that way because so now, it doesn't. We all know it's exactly a, now where Jade stands on being pro-life. Um, so, Jade, do you feel like once folks are getting elected that their opinions change? Let's just say uh, like right now, I mean, you, you've researched everything, you've lived these and you have these feelings and emotions but some of those other candidates, do they, do you feel like some folks go into office with intentions, great intentions, and they change? Does that happen? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the human way. I think we go into everything and we change. You see ministers say they've evolved on issues. They've changed on issues. That's the human condition. It's also the human possibility to be able to change. 
I think what has to happen is that as we change, we have to make sure we know and understand the motivation of our change. Are you changing because you want to be reelected? That's a bad change. Are you changing because of personal profit? That's a bad change. But are you changing now because you realize uh, that in order to honor people, that sometimes means you're going to do things that are of benefit to people who believe differently than you, who live differently than you. That's a good change. You see, one of the reasons I run openly with my faith out front is because I am disgusted by the example and the model that I've seen of Christianity and faith displayed in the current evangelical movement right now. I don't see myself in that. I don't know how you can profess to love God and then you're okay with lining up behind someone who professes things that are seemingly racist, that are at least supportive of supremacist viewpoints. I don't know how you can balance the two. I don't know how you can line up beside or behind someone who displays no fruits of the spirit, yet you say the word of God is where you're building your foundation. So I think this is a season now where hypocrisy is being exposed on all sides. Mm -hmm. You know, do black lives really matter? Do black voices really matter or only the ones that are saying what you want them to say? You know, people say, why haven't you put yourself out there? They have to ask themselves, if I've actually been out here since January and I have been putting myself out there, why is there not any more coverage of this campaign? That's true. It's not because we're serious because we filed all the paperwork. We're in working to be either on the ballot or as a registered uh, right. And in the majority of the states in this country, Yet Kanye West jumps out 4th of July, hadn't even registered. We covered that story, you see. But a serious candidate doesn't get covered because they are a threat to the current system. Uh, you probably have been watching some of the interviews. You've heard me talk about what producers have actually said. I saw you in your response on Facebook. You said, I'm just doing my job. Yeah. I'm, just, I'm just doing my part. It's not an endorsement to have me on here. You're telling a whole story. Where we've had media outlets who have point blank said, we can't cover her because she's too compelling and she's going to screw up what we're trying to do with Biden. Wow. Jay, I mean, we can't make that up. No, you can't. Um, what I'm going to do right now, this is a, this is going to be a, a great episode. I think this episode is going to go down in history right now. Hmm. Um, I think you're going to be in history as well too. Um, we're going to take a break, uh, listen to from one of our sponsors, and we'll be right back, and we're going to discuss Operation Restoration 2020. This is the AdCast. Hey, I'm Eric. You may wonder exactly what it is. Hey, I'm Eric. Is It's me. It's me just giving you the authentic, the real, the 100% me, right? There are teams that I work with, VIP Marketing, which is one of the best marketing agencies in the country. And then there's also Craft Creative, which is also one of the best creative teams in the country. And here I am in the middle. I'm the guy that you want to be able to hire to come and speak at your next event, talk to you or coach your team through whatever you're going through. So the next time you're thinking about how to get through what you're going through, go to heyameric.com. All right, I want to welcome everyone back to the AdCast. I am here with uh, my guest, Ms. Jade Simmons. She is an independent candidate running for the presidency of the United States. And uh, Jade, your campaign is named Operation Restoration 2020. Tell me how you came about that and what is behind Operation Restoration 2020. We knew that we wanted to do everything differently. We wanted in no way to resemble what people had seen in terms of politics and campaigning. I know that the current president ran on 
not being a politician, but I always challenge that's not really true. He'd funded um, politicians on both sides of the aisle for most of his adult life. I had been a lifelong Democrat reminding the Republicans here. He'd been in politics. And so when he came in the White House, it was an extension of the wheeling and dealing he'd done outside of the office. We didn't want to look like anything the world had ever seen. So we run ourselves more like a movement, in many ways more like a ministry. And the restoration that we're after is we would love to see, we want to be a part of restoring what we keep saying is the fabric of this nation that we've watched be ripped to shreds. Uh, that division has been used to rip us in terms of race relations, in terms of our economics. And I really believe what we're suffering from is a systemic heart issue in our nation. So that word operation has two meanings there. It's the operation in terms of being on a mission, but it is also the surgery that I think needs to be done. And I believe we're in an incredibly powerful moment, Eric, that's not just all darkness. I believe that we get to come out of the shining brighter, but only if we do things differently. So Mm -hmm. we're here to really provide a different vision of what our nation can be. And, you know, the joke's kind of on us. This is not really about becoming anything radically different. It's really about becoming what we've been saying we've always been. One nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. We all have to recite that over and over. But do we look like it? And is this the moment where we can finally look like it? You know, the corruption we see in, in politics, the lopsidedness, it's been profitable for those in power. But people have always been the ones paying for it. And we believe that more people are ready to be done with politics as usual. That's why we're standing here. We invite people, do your homework, do your due diligence, go to operationrestoration2020.com. I will say most of the people who come and oppose us, oppose us out of fear. Never from the policy standpoint. I wish they would come and say, I just don't like your health care. <laughs> I just don't like, you know, what you're saying about being pro-human. I just don't like your stance on the military. They never come with that. Wow. I wish they would even just come at me with, she doesn't have any experience. They come out of fear. You're going to split the vote. And this is from both sides. Republicans think I'm being paid by Biden to split the Christian vote. Uh, Democrats think I'm being paid by Trump uh, to split the black vote. And the irony is that the initial momentum we got was not from the black community. Uh, Only in the last two months are we now seeing more traction with a younger demographic of black people who have been empowered by this moment of protest and do not want to see it end in symbolism. And they hear our voice, our vision, and this message is being one that will finally do the hard work of beginning to rectify hundreds and hundreds of years of systemic injustices, but also to serve many different people groups that have gone underserved over the years. Why is that, um, Jay, that you have, in the beginning, you had less African-Americans supporting your campaign? Uh, I, I would normally say I think, but now we know. Um, we have been conditioned as African-Americans to believe that our only source of power is within the Democratic Party. Now, I know there are others who believe it's in the Republican Party, and I would argue that's definitely not it as well. I don't think that you can have anyone who has a leader like President Trump who, uh, even if you try to argue that he himself is not racist, um, the the increase in racism and animosity and race-based animosity that we've seen under this administration is undeniable. So I don't know how anyone could justify that and justify that that is a place for African-Americans. 
Um, as someone who has, you know, started her climb up the economic ladder, I see the temptation of simply beginning to vote for a way that justifies your own happiness, your own stability. And I think that's the wrong way to vote as well. So the African-American community in the beginning, we met with staunch resistance for people who, listen, just want to get the president out of office. I understand that. I understand the fervor with that. My challenge has been, but who do we want in office? Do we just want to settle for feeling better, for having the so-called chaos that we're experiencing now go away? Or do we want to actually look differently on the other side of it? So we knew that if we stayed standing and stayed standing strongly and put out powerful proposals, that people would, when they did their due diligence, would find us and they would stick with us. And that's what we're seeing. We keep saying the conversion factor is real. People are seeing um, something that doesn't look like politics as usual. They see a heart for people. And maybe most compellingly, they see a heart for service. You know, I believe that your president should be the servant leader of the nation. They cast a vision. Mm -hmm. They also should change the atmosphere in a way that progress can happen for all people. They shouldn't create an atmosphere that stirs up strife and division and disables progress in any way, shape or form. Well, how do we fix that? How do we fix that? Because um, there, there is a lot of tension. Uh, there's people, you know, like I see a couple of police officers and, and, and I have a lot of friends who are police officers and police officers are not bad people. And, no. and, and I hear people saying, oh, OK, let's defund the police, you know, departments. And when you do that, what happens when you have an issue at your house and you have to call 911? You know, yeah. um, there, there, there are some bad apples out there. There's no doubt about that. But how do we calm race relations in our country now? And, and how can you help communicate that? I think you focus on what everybody wants, right? You see, when you, when you get caught up in the us versus them, again, the only people that win are the institutions. The people get left outside. I hear what you're saying about bad apples, and I'll, I'll push back a little bit and say it's, it's different. It's, and I have police officer friends who say this. It's not just bad apples because no one, I, I, my police officer friends say no one hates a bad cop more than a good cop because they do yep. a disservice to everything. No, I agree. I agree 100%. But I think we would be naive to only think that it's bad apples. Bad apples can only exist in a system that has some bad roots in it. And so while we have a large majority of officers that I believe are on duty for the right reasons, who want to protect, who want to serve, if we don't do something serious, about the system, the good old boy network as well, that allows these bad apples to keep producing bad fruit, then we do even the good cops a disservice. So I propose programs that include collaboration, creative collaboration. And I think as an artist, one of the things that I'm prone to do is think outside of the box and look for ways we haven't done things before. How do we make a whole new uh, you know, orchestration, so to speak, moving forward? So I talk a lot about crisis prevention teamwork between law enforcement, social services, psychological services, family services, uh, and mental health. You look at many of these issues that escalate started as psychological breaks, mental health issues, mental, mental illness crises, and crises. So I think these are issues that don't get enough discussion because we get caught up in the heightened rhetoric of abolish police, 
right, versus law and order. If you make this only a law and order issue, then you absolutely lose the opportunity to address the underlying heart issues there. If you look at the history of policing, just the origins of it, the reason that people do get so rightfully riled up is because the origins were dark. The origins started pitting black against white, and it positioned uh, the African-American to be inherently bad, something that needed to be corrected or contained. And that, unfortunately, has persisted for many. But I think the system we're seeing now is one where you don't have um, leadership that's able to fire the bad cops when they need to. You have qualified immunity that allows people to use the job itself as the shield uh, for accountability. You don't have a national, um, imagine if we had a national, numbers not inventory, but a system where we could actually see the marks, see what's going on with these rogue cops, right? You would see in that system that Derek Chauvin had 14 plus violations. Like a national internal affairs almost. Yeah, yeah, So that, but, but that trans, has transparency built into it. Right. And so these are the things that we have to have moving forward. When I say we have to go after what everybody wants, we want safe communities that are safeguarded. And we want one justice system that treats everybody the same way. I want to know that as a black man, when I get pulled over, I'm going to be treated the same way that a white guy gets pulled over. And we, and we have video that shows it's not always the same. We see some instances be de-escalated and others get out of control. So I think what the nation wants is one system that works fairly for everyone. We want to know that each situation is being handled rightfully with the right amount of force, with the appropriate consequence attached. We don't want to keep seeing disparities. Even then, that goes in our school systems, Eric. You think about it, you know, we see a disproportion between how kids are diagnosed. Some kids get a diagnosis. Other kids, mostly kids of color, Mm -hmm. get a referral. You understand? And that already is even uh, caused a lot by socioeconomic difference, by racial difference. And you'll see these kids get tracked for either a disciplinary issue or, you know, he has a diagnosis. He needs accommodation. Very different treatment. Um, And we know what that's like in our family to have to take control, to have to be empowered parents that said, listen, we understand that our child learns differently. Now, what do we do about that? We have to fight to get different diagnoses. We have to pay a lot of money for that and then ended up paying for a school that costs what most people pay for in mortgage every month. Not every parent is going to be able to do that. And we don't believe it's fair that only some families can afford to get their kids the education that they need so that they can uh, avoid being tracked wrongfully so that they can have the same opportunities and advantages of their peers. So these are issues that I think have to be dealt with now, first from a level of heart, how we see each other, and then from a level of collaboration versus looking at how do we dismantle something, take it apart. You're talking about throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Wow. You know, you get rid of police and then when the when the when the criminal's knocking on your door, there's no one to call. But what people are really saying is they want to see a difference in how the police respond in their communities. They don't want their communities over police. And when they say defund, you, you won't hear me using a lot of the heightened hashtags because they're divisive. You'll hear me talk about a reallocation of funds that supports 
what law enforcement is supposed to be doing in our communities, which okay. is serving our community. Yeah. Is there ever a side of the aisle that you agree with more? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I always lean one way or the other. And to me, the key as the leader is to make sure that your decisions are not only based on the way that you lean, but what will do the best, what will create the best outcome for the most people. So listen, you're talking to number one, go getter, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. I won't take no for an answer. I'm going to figure it out. I'm not even going to ask for help. A lot of times I'm going to figure it out. That doesn't mean that everybody is in the position to do things the same way that I've done them. So when I vote, I don't vote based on, you know, I was able to do it this way. So everybody else should too. No assistance for anybody. I didn't have any assistance. I think that's not the way that we should be voting. It's not the way that we should be uh, behaving towards each other. And I think that is the challenge of leadership. So when you talk about those viewpoints changing and people changing, because you, I think, I assume you get in and your side says, hey, this is what we need. We need you talking more like us. So you start to lean one way. So you're all the way that way and you forget that there are others who need differently. I'm by saying when I became a minister um, and started doing women's ministry at, at the church that I attend uh, and eventually was you know, speaking from the pulpit to co-ed audiences, one of my mentors said, Jade, the best advice I can give you is once you get in the pulpit, do not forget what it was like to be in the pew. Wow. Do not forget what it was like. And that created, it created the infrastructure for how I led as a minister. Um, it, it, it really changed, really didn't even change it because I think I would have felt that way, but it kept me mindful. Every decision that was made couldn't just be from the standpoint of what does leadership think is best. Mm -hmm. It's what was it like when I was in the pews? How would I have seen this? as a congregant, you know, leadership has the behind the scenes info, but how does it appear? Perception is everything. How does it appear to the congregation? If we do it this way, if we do it that way, and that will shift the way that you behave as a leader. And I think it shifts it for the better. Well, why, why don't we have much conversation about foreign policy? Because I, uh, whenever I watch the news, I try and watch them all so I can get my own opinion. You know, I don't want one side to sway me either way. But why is it that we don't hear much policy discussion or, or what America's standing is like in the world? Yeah, well, I think we have a wrongful assumption that Americans don't care. You know, media is driven by rating. So to cover what's going on in the South China Sea, that's not going to get you as much ratings if you, uh, than if you covered riots happening in Seattle. Mm -hmm. You see, so we're a ratings driven uh, nation. So that's why we didn't know about COVID-19 until March when I've been following it since December, you see. So I was wondering why weren't we hearing about this, you know, mysterious COVID-19 when I was following COVID, <laughs> it wasn't COVID yet. It was still just coronavirus. And there were only six people who had died from it in the world. Yeah, I was in Las I Vegas remember, when I heard about it. Yeah, well, and, and I remember when they were saying, oh, we don't think this will make the jump from animal to human. And mm -hmm. then it did. 
And then I remember when they were saying, well, it's six people. We, we pretty much, we think it's going to die out pretty quickly. And then I remember when it was, I went on a speaking engagement, came back and it had gone from something like six people to a hundred in a matter of days. And I remember them, I hearing the panic uh, with the road health organization. And then I remember them saying, well, at the end, we don't think it'll become a pandemic. Because in order to be a pandemic, it has to be in 23 nations. Give it a few weeks, we were beginning to call it a pandemic because it had spread so quickly. And we did not, I didn't hear that on American media for I don't know how long. I was listening to you know international podcasts to get most of my news. So foreign policy, I love that you asked this question because I rarely get to talk about it on most interviews. I don't think we realize how we are affected by foreign policy. So, for instance, if I tell you about the South China Sea, how we should keep our eyes on it, the reason is because China's doing things that it promised it wouldn't. There are islands that it is militarizing that it promised it wouldn't. Uh, we look at what happened with China and Hong Kong. They got a pretty serious victory there. We go, well, that's just Hong Kong. And, you know, well, democracy, yeah, but what does it have to do with us? What it has to do with us is we know that in China's uh, eye gaze is Taiwan. If China does the same thing in Taiwan, what you're going to see now is an incredible monopoly of our tech, our software, our processors. That's what we need to have technology. You talk about a national security issue where we're no longer in control of, of being able to make our tech products, buy our tech products, get our processors. I talk a lot about becoming a producer nation. And people like the way that sounds. Sounds very American. Buy American, make American. Well, it's deeper than that. It's deeper than that because we don't want to be vulnerable to the other nations that right now, mostly Asian countries, have the monopoly on our technology, uh, our technology in general, cybersecurity. That's technology. We had to go all the way to China, ironically, mm -hmm. and Mexico to get our PPE during COVID-19. Why is that? Because our manufacturers have their factories abroad. We couldn't even make what we needed right here on America. So how do, so how when do you we, talk about how do yeah. we how do we prepare? How do you prepare for something like COVID? Because there's there's yeah. really like there's no way to prepare for it. I mean, even as a family, you know, let's just say my family, for example, um, we wear the mask. You you put gloves on when you go out in public. You sanitize. You wash your hands. Try not to touch your face. You know, um, what do you do? You feel like you know not just from the presidency. Do you feel like a lot of leaders across the country? have failed people when it comes to COVID? I think we were definitely short-sighted. Were you not shocked at how slow we were to get, I mean, I think we have this illusion. It's America, right? That we were going to have this under control. I don't believe you when we say we can't prepare. I'll prove it to you. We live in Texas. You're in South Carolina, I mm -hmm. think. What happens every year uh, around, what, June to October, hurricane season. And what do we do every year? We, they tell us to go to the store, we get a certain amount of supplies, and then we keep our eye out. I believe we now have to engage in what I call pandemic proofing and ongoing emergency preparation. We should have storehouses in strategic places across this nation mm -hmm. that are federal storehouses, but they are strategically placed to have inter interstate access. Those inventories should be monitored annually. How was it that we didn't know what Georgia had on, on stock? That Georgia didn't know what it had on stock. We should have an inventory that we're always looking at and saying, hey, we got to look. Georgia's running low on. That's interesting. I've never, I've, never, I've never heard that thought before. 
I mean, it, but it, isn't it basic when you say it, right? So what happens is imagine now having this national inventory that we're keeping track of. So President Trump blames President Obama. He says, hey, when I got here, the storehouse was empty. Well, President Trump was in office for three years. Why didn't he restock? You see, the blame shifting isn't helping us. We also need a national strategy that states can customize. You don't just say states do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. You say, here's a framework to work within. Now customize it to your needs. I was just in Omaha. They just now started wearing masks because they, they didn't have to, because they didn't have the same numbers. And they got to watch the rest of the nation mostly uh, fail at it. And so they were blessed enough not to have the same effect. So they didn't have to respond in the same way. But because of the way that we handled it initially, you had states who didn't take it seriously at all. South Carolina, my home state, was one of them. Florida was one of them. Georgia and Texas was another. We were last with it. So now we're in the middle of a peak when everybody else was finally leveling off. And that's because I believe this was a decision the president made based on re-election. He knows that the red states, which I don't believe is a thing, but he believes that those states needed to hear he wasn't going to infringe on their rights. So he made a decision based on what would keep them most likely voting for him. We have to enter an era when we prioritize now people over politics every single time. That means that as, as your president, you might have been mad at me um, in May because I would have said, we're going to stay shut down. Well, you can't make everyone happy when you're president. I think that's one no, thing that people, people need to understand that you, regardless of whatever decision you make, someone's going to be unhappy with you. Well, at least make sure those decisions are made for the benefit of the people and not for the benefit of politics. If you're going to be mad anyway, be mad at me because I'm keeping you safer. Don't be mad at me because for the sake of your vote in November, I allowed things to be a little bit lax. So you wouldn't be upset with me. You've got to do what you wanted, but now you're sick. Now your family member is sick. If we're going to open up schools seriously in the middle of a pandemic, which I think was the wrong decision, but if you are insisting on doing that, you don't cut funding from the schools that said we're not going to open. You give them the funding so that they can do digital learning more powerfully than they did in the crisis portion of COVID-19. You give funding and a plan to teach. You know, there were teachers who had to make up their own COVID-19 plans. They had to make up their own plans for how to teach in the middle of COVID. Right. And I just saw a case where a teacher got diagnosed on Friday, a young teacher, and was dead by Monday. What are you going to tell those kids in class on Monday? We didn't think about the mental health ramifications of coming to school and your teacher who you saw on Friday is no longer there. Wow. Your class sat next to you yesterday is no longer there. Most of us graduate all the way through high school and never experience a death from kindergarten to high school in our school. And now we're literally setting our kids up and our teachers to have to deal with the mental health trauma uh, of losing people without a plan, yet again, a plan. So to me, you know, pandemic proofing, ongoing emergency um, preparation is also an industry that will produce new jobs. So I'm excited about being able to employ creative solutions that put people back to work uh, and keep us safe at the same time. So I want us to take our final break. And then when we come back, I want to talk about your first 100 days, Jade Simmons, what you would do. This is the AdCast. This, my friends, is a light switch. Many of us are not concerned what happens behind the switch. As business owners in business, all we want to know is when we hit the switch, 
the lights come on. We're not so focused or concerned, or do we know exactly what happens behind the switch? I'll tell you who's an expert on what happens when you hit the switch. It's an electrician, and in this case, it's the marketing agency. Not only do they know how to hit the switch, but they know everything that's behind it. You deserve very important places. Craft Creative was extremely professional. They're extremely knowledgeable. Creative, so responsive, so um, friendly. They just really allowed me to be the best version of myself. And not only allowed it, they encouraged it. Anyone that's thinking of maybe going out and pulling the trigger and getting a video done or having a video created or some brand recognition stuff created, I highly encourage it to be done and help launch us to continued success. I'm attorney George Sink. I've been working with Kraft for about three years, and they produce great work. It's been very effective for me, and I think it'll be very effective for you. Try them out. I think I'm out of way. You're listening to the AdCast. All right, we're back on the AdCast with uh, our dynamic guest, Ms. Jade Simmons. Uh, if we could, you folks, give her a round of applause for sticking with us so far. <laughs> give her a round of applause. All right, all right. So we, we want to thank you so much, Jade, for uh, making sure you give us your time. And I think it's important to let the people hear your message. Um, and we heard a lot, you know, about, you know, how you feel. You talked about pro-life. We talked about race relations, George Floyd, foreign policy, COVID-19. That's a lot. We packed in a lot. Now I want to ask you about what would you do in your first 100 days if you are elected our president of the United States? I've said this a couple of times. I think the last thing you should want is a president to declare their first 100 days based on vanity and legacy. I think the first 100 days must be determined by the last quarter of the year preceding that president's election. Unfortunately, because I do believe that we have not handled COVID-19 as powerfully, as cautiously as we could have, much of my first 100 days will be about setting up the infrastructure to begin to engage in ongoing emergency preparation. So imagine things like incentivizing new construction, that when you build the new stadium in that city, that we incentivize you with tax breaks to build in pieces of the infrastructure that will help us in the next pandemic, mm-hmm. help us in the next emergency. So you're going to see those types of incentives and, and new manufacturing in our nation that will help us in terms of pandemic proofing. The other part of our uh, focus simultaneously will be on job creation. And I think we can do that in that new industry. Imagine now hiring all of these testers and tracers uh, that you can hire from the community. They can be trained. We've seen this in developing Nations, third world countries will put to work people in their communities to learn how to test for the different virus, to trace the different viruses that they have been plagued by. We're learning that now from third world countries who should be learning from us in this, but many of them have been handling COVID better than we have. So you get to focus on jobs, you get to focus on pandemic proofing. And I think any leader who inhabits the White House in 2021, who does not put purposeful attention on rectifying the wrongs of systemic injustice misses an incredible opportunity. We've got universal buy-in finally 
that systemic racism exists. What does that mean? Does that mean a more season of us against them? Not at all. To me, it's about a plan to reconciliation, but to get to reconciliation, you've got to have real-time diagnosis of the issues. You've got to look at things like police brutality, law enforcement reform. You've also got to look at educational reform and economic reform. Mm -hmm. So I think in the first 100 uh, days, almost like 100 years, in the first 100 days. You've been president for a long time. No, no, I I think what people need to see is that the atmosphere shifts towards restoration and repairing and rebuilding. And I don't think you get to do that with first out recognizing and acknowledging that there's blood on our hands in a lot of different ways. Uh, And I think we now need a president, which I would declare to be, which is a president for all people who's also unapologetically a champion for those who have been underserved. And we have a lot of different people, groups who fall into that category. I do believe that black Americans have suffered for the longest under certain policies and institutional ways and behaviors that we now have to rectify. And so in the first 100 days, you would see me doing things like leaning into uh, ending qualified immunity. There's an act right now that has Sponsors that are mostly Democratic, but I do believe uh, I'd be a palate cleansing presidency that now we can take a deep breath. It won't be easy, but I do believe that I'd be able to foster more coordination and collaboration between the parties than ever before. Why? Because right now, people have the ears of their political leaders. Hmm. People right now are driving things more than ever before. And we now have a little more leverage than before if we decide not to do politics as usual. I think electing uh, someone like myself, knowing that I'm on the side of all people and will fight for the people, I think that means something differently. And we can impress upon our politicians uh, that if they are serious now about continuing to be the people in power, they have to continue to be people or become people who will actually give power and not just lord power over our head. Okay, so you said like the first 100 days, a lot of it's about legacy. So now what's one of the most important decisions that a president can make within 100 days? I think one of the most important decisions, at least in this era, that a president can make will be the decision that brings the quickest amount of peace and the quickest amount of relief. So to me, that's why I say the focus has to be on both jobs and on reconciliation simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And we have to believe that we're safe into the future. That's why I mentioned pandemic proofing. And what I said about legacy is that if you really want to build legacy, your first concern can't be legacy. So if you're making all your decisions based on how does this make me look, you've already lost. But if your decisions can replace of how many people can I serve with this move? How many people can we elevate with this action? How many people can we protect with this law? You're going to end up having an incredible legacy because your first thought was on the people you serve. I had a good friend. He said something just like that. Um, uh, He's Mm -hmm. involved in politics here locally. And he said, if your first thing that you're worried about when you get elected is to get reelected, then you're the wrong person for the job. Absolutely. So there's a whole other hour we need to talk about it, but that's why I'm in favor of term limits. Mm -hmm. There's no way you have a society that evolves but leadership that stays stagnant. Now, doesn't make any states like Texas and South Carolina. They are, um, 
they love their Second Amendment rights. Uh, where mm-hmm. do you stand on um, the Second Second Amendment rights, Jane? I don't have a problem with people owning guns, and I know responsible gun owners who say that they are for responsible gun ownership, gun control, gun management. So you'll see me talking about common sense gun laws, about closing loopholes that allow guns to be so easily purchased. Uh, things like really increasing the, I want to look at the way that we do background checks. Mm-hmm. I think we messed up, even when you look at uh, policing, the way that we hire our police now, I think has to become more intense, more intensified. So while I don't have a problem with people owning guns, I have a problem with those guns ending up in the hands of people like Dylan Roof, ending up in the hands of a shooter in my kid's school. I got a problem with that. So I think legislation needs to focus on how do we keep guns out of the wrong hands and what kind of guns do Americans really need to have in their home? I was you know, sort of joking with someone last night that if you need a machine gun to hunt down a deer, hunting's probably not your, that's probably not your strong point. You know, so I, I think we need to be looking at ways now where we don't always start those discussions from the place of division. When you say, how are you on the second? Amendment. Well, the Second Amendment exists. Mm-hmm. What am I? Gonna, we're not going to get rid of the Second Amendment, right? Right. So, how do you protect the rights of gun owners, but also protect citizens who shouldn't have to come in contact with guns while they're in school? Shouldn't have to come in contact with gun violence when they're on the job. So, I think we have some serious work to do, and I think the only people we've really failed in these last fifteen years um, are especially children in school that are dealing with gun violence unexpectedly. That's not fair. It's not fair for them to lose lives while we argue, um, you know, over guns in our homes. I think this is an issue that we now have to really do something about and talk about very seriously. So I am for gun control, and I don't think that that has to mean you suddenly lose all your Second Amendment rights. So we have to stop talking in that way. Jade, what is the most powerful lesson you've learned since running for president? Well, <laughs> that, does that face say it all? <laughs> I'm trying to pick one and, and make sure that we end on a positive note. You will, you will never get permission from man to shift this paradigm. So if you are waiting on permission to disrupt, you're going to be waiting forever. If you're waiting on an invitation to come in, and make people uncomfortable, <laughs> you're going to be waiting forever. Mm-hmm. I think the most powerful lesson I have learned is that when you feel compelled to move, even when it is the least popular thing you can do, if you're truly a believer in the fact that you were put on this earth to walk out a mission, then you've got to walk it. And you can't wait on man's approval for it. We, you know, When we see the comments like what I saw before we went live and uh, what I see about every hour on the hour that has now become fuel. So, you know, we've got inside joke behind the scenes is like, keep it coming because it's literally what keeps going, <laughs> you know? So it's like, and plus it boosts your algorithms on social media. So either way we win, right? But it's like, what I'm understanding now is that when you're doing a hard thing and, and, I, and I'm not putting myself in the same ilk of the names that I'm going to name, but you'll understand what I'm saying. You look at a Harriet Tubman. Mm. I can only imagine that when she was plotting the escape, people said, listen, it's not all that bad on this plantation. You know, 
if you go do that, you're going to screw things up. They're going to make it bad for all of us if you do that. Please don't go, Harriet. And something in her said, nah, this, what we're doing right here, I know we're existing. I know they're giving us food. I, you know, I know we're surviving, but this can't be it. And not only did she break away and leave by herself, but she kept coming back. She kept coming back. And I'm sure she rescued people who thought she was crazy the first time she left. I'm sure that with her, she helped get to freedom. People who didn't like her very much and thought she thought too much of herself or was too big of her britches or was outside of her lane, but she kept doing it anyway. And so the kind of leader that I want to be and that I believe I have been thus far is one that says it doesn't matter whether or not you like that I'm here, whether or not you voted for me, I will serve you anyway. And I'll do you one better. I'll love you while I'm doing it. And I'll honor you regardless. And that has been the most empowering thing to be able to show love and express honor, uh, to be able to bless people when they curse us, to be able to say, it doesn't matter. I'm going to serve you anyway. Uh, um, That has been something that I'll tell you what, it keeps me going, Eric. And if, if that's what I pass on to my kids, that they learn how to stand in that way in spite of not getting the approval, of the people you thought, listen, we're going to keep it real, real. I still got cousins who are riding with bikes. We keep it real. I still have family that I know that's going to say, ah, you know, we're still going to stick over here because it's safer. Hmm. You know, if, if we, we still, but, but then we have perfect strangers who find us and say, you are exactly what we were praying for. We have perfect strangers who we meet on the street who are now our most rabid volunteers. We have people who will drop everything they're doing, hop on a plane, come to where we are to campaign in the middle of COVID-19. And when you have that kind of rabid behavior from people who have no business believing in you, it doesn't matter to you that the people you worship next to, that you might share blood with, that you're Facebook friends with, that are in your phone book, it doesn't matter to you that they stay silent or speak negatively of because you understand, and this is, this is the minister of me coming out here, but I want you to understand this because I, I believe it will bless the people who are in this position. I kept looking in the beginning for my people to support this. Now, what did my, my people could be black people. It could be Christian. It could be my church family, my family, family. I kept looking for my people. And I remember God kind of impressing upon me in one of my quiet time sessions. He said, you keep looking for your people, but I've got my people. I've got my people. You see, and that changes everything. It then you, you're not offended by who doesn't get what you're doing. You're not offended when your loved ones don't love what you're doing. You're not offended when the people you worship next to suddenly think you've lost your mind. Mm-hmm. You just keep walking and you know that you're serving the people you're called to serve. Our promise has been, we can't promise anyone that we will win the White House. You better believe we're strategizing to do it. We've got our 270 lined up. We, we know which path we need to take, what states we need to focus on. We're doing our due diligence. But what we can promise you is that we will serve people every single day until the White House and beyond. In that way, we've already won. And that's why we don't go sit down when someone who's afraid we're going to split the mythical vote wants us to. Because we know how many people we've already served. We've already seen the outcome. So when we have that, it, it makes us unshakable and unstoppable in a way that I wish 
even my worst enemies could experience because it will absolutely change your life. Yeah, we will never be the same after this, no matter how it ends up. So when that one user was saying that what I was doing was a waste of talent, the only wasted talent is unused talent. The only wasted vote is a vote for something you don't truly believe in. And that's how we stand. That's how we practice as a campaign. And I'll tell you what, we're still standing strong and we're still standing powerful. I think that's, uh, I think that's very well said. Um, Jade, what, do you, what would you say to the media right now for how they treat independent candidates? What would you say if you, you had this uh, a big microphone right now and we could talk to everyone, hit a button and hit it, talk to everyone in the United States, what would you say? I think we all have to remember that we have purpose. And we must be careful that our purpose is not manhandled by anyone else's agenda. So as people in the media, your purpose is to keep us informed, to keep us abreast of what's really happening. It's to tell the story, not to write the story. So I won't waste any more time on the media that hasn't covered us. I will spend my time being in complete gratitude to people like you, Eric, and others who have said, this is what we said we were here to do, which is to tell a story, to inform. I would be proud to be the president of the most informed nation in the world that is known for understanding what's really going on around them, for being able to see through altered narratives to find the heart of the real stories that is this nation. And so I look forward to the opportunity to be on uh, more networks that are ready now to actually operate in their, in their purpose without fear, to just tell the story and then let the people decide for themselves. All right, just present the let option. Let them, let them, we say, we encourage you. Once you go do your homework, please do your homework. People get really impressed. They watch these interviews and they go, you got my vote. I say, not so fast. Go do your homework. Look at Operation Restoration 2020.com. Look at those policies. Then look at the policies of the president. Then look at the policies of Vice President Joe Biden and say, where would I best be served? And where would people I love best be served? And where would people who even I disagree with mm-hmm. but I decide to honor them anyway? How would they also be served in this Simmons administration, Biden administration, Trump administration, and then when you go to the polls, you cast your vote in vision instead of in fear. We believe that changes everything. And the reason we're still standing is because we do see viability. We know an independent has never won. We're not naive. We understand that running mostly as a write-in is next to impossible. But I know too many stories of what was supposed to be impossible. And it was, you know, I mean, every great person who's disrupted never looked like uh, they were the guy coming in from the top. They were always the underdog. Every great story starts that way. And I think it's because the underdog is supposed to be of the people, with the people. I believe so I'm you've, excited. you've definitely gained a, a lot of attention and you've bent some ears for sure. I have two questions for you and then I'll, I'll kind of wrap it up there. If you were to get the call uh, and someone said, you know, hey, Jade, you know, you ran a great campaign. Would you be in my administration? Would Mm. you consider that? I think the only thing that we can consider is any opportunity that allows you to stay in alignment with your values and beliefs. I have been approached from both sides before to run for office, and there's a reason I haven't done that, and it's because I don't see 
myself and what these parties currently represent. But I also do believe that we have a mandate to offer knowledge, wisdom, insight wherever possible. So if there was a way that I could stay where I am in alignment with my values and beliefs, if I would not be forced to toe a party line, I would consider an opportunity to impact. But I'll tell you that right now my focus is not on those opportunities because I believe that I tend to make my own opportunities. So if this does not end at the White House, then I don't believe I go back to doing business as usual. I believe that this path now is set and there are lots of different things that I need to be about the business of doing. So that's my focus. Um, I would say yes to things that allow me to continue to serve people, prioritize people and elevate people in purpose. So we'll see what those opportunities look like if they don't end up putting us at 1600 Pennsylvania, but we are in no way, shape or form giving up on that goal. We are strategizing behind the scenes right now to do just that. Well, Jade, uh, it has been such a pleasure to uh, speak to you. I want you to go ahead and kind of tell folks exactly how to find you, give them your Instagram handle. How do they research you? Like you said, you want them to research you. I want them to do their homework and hold us accountable. Uh, You're going to go to operation restoration, 2020.com. You're going to see policy there. We've also released these kind of small form platforms so you can find out short and sweet where, where we stand on the issues. Also look at some of our past interviews that I've done. I want you to look for one thing, which is consistency. Make sure I don't change my stripes and my spots with every different host. Make sure you see the same person because that's who's going to show up to lead you. I ask you to follow us on Facebook, Operation Restoration 2020. We're on Instagram at official Jay Simmons, Twitter, at Jade Simmons as well. I love to interact whenever possible. We have less and less time now, but whenever possible, I'll respond directly. Uh, And lastly, let me just say, we uh, as an independent, Eric, I get to actually invite everyday Americans to serve in the electoral college on my behalf. So if you liked what I was talking about today and you want to be with us all the way, hit us up uh, at info at operationrestoration2020.com put the state, your state in the subject line, and we'll tell you more about what it looks like to represent us in the electoral college. So we're doing things differently. Those spots usually go to your wealthiest donor or a celebrity. We've got teachers, principals, ministers, artists uh, who serve in each state for us. They will represent us. They'll cast the electoral vote for us when we win the popular vote in their state. So I told you, Eric, when we decided we're going to do anything like anybody else was doing it. This is a campaign, a presidency that would be with the people who want to look like that from start to finish. So thank you again for having me. I'm really appreciative of the space that you've made. And I can see you've actually been thoughtful and I've been considering uh, what I've been saying and really been listening. And that's all we ask is that people listen. They don't have to be afraid of a new option. Just see if it's the option that would serve you best and then decide accordingly. Well, Jade Simmons, it has been uh, such a pleasure to be able to have you on. I want to thank our guest, Jade Simmons, and I will also thank our uh, video production crew, Craft Creative, the folks behind the camera that you know, you guys don't get to see. They're actually making sure that everything goes off without a hitch. I want to thank you to everyone listening to the AdCast. And to our, our listeners, thank you for giving us your most valuable asset, which is your time. This has been the AdCast. 
If you feel this podcast has been a help to you or could be a help to others, please don't forget to subscribe. You can listen to our podcast anywhere, iHeart, Spotify, Apple Music, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And this episode is also going to be available on YouTube. To catch up on past episodes, go to heyimeric.com, or you can always text me at 843-483-1555. Copyright VIP Marketing and Advertising, produced by Craft Creative. For premium video production and graphic design, visit WeCraftCreative.com.